Chapter Twenty Three of Esther Reed Yet Speaking. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Esther Reed Yet Speaking by Pansy. Chapter Twenty Three, Part of the Great Well-to-Do World. I must call at this house, the doctor said, suddenly drawing rein before a quiet little house at the foot of a wide lawn. The gatekeeper of this American castle has a sick child whom I have promised to see. Can you hold the horses, Miss Dennis, or shall I tie them? This is a quiet spot, and they are gentle. I am not afraid of anything, Gracie said, eyes aglow as well as cheeks. And the doctor went into the house, wondering whether Professor Ellis, if he could see her now, would not be afraid of her. Once inside, he gave a start of surprise, almost of dismay, for the face which appeared at the open door of the sick room belonged to Joy Saunders. You here? he said, trying to control the disturbed element in his voice. She answered quietly, I came out by streetcar. Did you drive? Yes, he said abruptly, but I am not alone. How is the child? And he went forward at once to his professional duties, leaving her to wonder over his manner. It was peculiar, certainly. Joy Saunders was used to abruptness from this man, but there was a quality in it today that she did not recognize. She went and looked out of the window, and saw Gracie Dennis holding the horses, saw her red, red cheeks and flashing eyes, and the peculiar haughty poise of her head, with which the stepmother at home was well acquainted. She did not know this Gracie Dennis, save by reputation. Once Dr. Everett had asked her to call at Mrs. Roberts, and had made her feel as though she were foolishly conventional in declining to do so. How is she ever to know you according to the rules which trammel society? There ought to be some way arranged for Christians to be free from trammels. This had been his comment, but he had not asked her again, and she had never met Mrs. Roberts, nor yet Gracie Dennis. Yet she knew her very well, and had watched her often as she passed. She knew instantly who she was now, as she sat there in her haughty beauty, checking with determined hand the impatience of those horses. Oh, she knew more than this. It was very apparent now why Dr. Everett was peculiarly abrupt, and, well, yes, embarrassed. She had almost thought that was the name of the feeling, only it had seemed so absurd. And then Joy Saunders held her meek little head high, and told herself that he need not fear her presence. She could go as she had come, in the streetcar. The doctor came towards her now, speaking rapidly as usual. Joy, the child is very sick. There ought to be an experienced person here tonight. Not you. I am sorry you came up. Do you think your mother would come? Will you ride down with me? I have Miss Dennis in the carriage, but it is quite large enough for three, you know. Then Joy had turned away her head, holding it high, and said, No, thank you. I am going down in the streetcar. And that blundering doctor drew on his gloves, saying to himself, I don't know but that is best, and went out only waiting to say to Joy, Will you ask your mother about it? I will see her as soon as I can get around. I wish you would go directly home from here, will you? Then he lifted his hat to her, and sprang into his carriage and rode away with Gracie Dennis, and Joy Saunders waited for the next yellow car and climbed into it, and told herself all the way downtown that she wished she had stayed at the little house and watched all night by the sick child. The thoughts that Dr. Everett had given to the entire matter were few. 
they ran somewhat after this fashion. Joy here, and I am afraid of the fever from all I've heard. I shall take her home as soon as possible. How will that poor little girl in the carriage manage with a new acquaintance just now, I wonder? I am afraid it will be quite a strain. Still, I can do the talking and let her be quiet. The main point is that I hoped she might have a suggestion to make about Hester. If she could rouse herself to try to save that girl, it would be the best thing she could do. If she only knew it, Joy is the one who could help her in that direction or any other. As they dashed down the avenue, he was still occupied in wishing that he had urged Joy to ride, and thus forced an acquaintance between her and the pretty girl at his side. He was not very patient with what he called the trammels of society. When there were two people so fitted to enjoy and help one another, as were Joy Saunders and Gracie Dennis, he held it to be a waste in Christian economy that they should not know each other. Too much occupied with his thoughts and his driving to give heed to passers-by, he lost the careful bow that young Reed had for him as they drew near the city's whirl again. Gracie did not. She returned it with a slightly heightened color in her cheeks, and wondered if that young man knew Professor Ellis, and what he thought of him, and what he thought of her for being acquainted with him. Sometimes it seems to me a real pity that on occasion there could not be some way of looking into one another's thoughts. So many misunderstandings might thus be saved. For instance, there was Reed, who went on his way with a clouded brow. Where had Dr. Everett been? And why was Gracie Dennis with him? Was it probable that he had been riding for pleasure? The bare suggestion astonished the young man. He found that he had never before given room to the thought that Dr. Everett took time for pleasure. Allowing this to be the case, why had he not taken Joy Saunders with him? Such a proceeding would have seemed altogether natural, though the honest-hearted young fellow admitted to himself that, had he been taking a ride for pleasure, the companion of his choice would not have been Joy Saunders. It was certainly a bewildering world. So trying did young Reed find his thoughts on that evening that he actually set himself deliberately to learn whether the ride was the result of chance or design. The consequence was that he learned not only of the ride, but of the afternoon entertainment at Selser Hall, with glass goblets for instruments. This increased his astonishment, and did not lessen the gloom on his face. But the two in the carriage, unconscious of the gloomy young man, or of the sad-hearted young girl riding in a street-car, were almost silent during the homeward ride, until just as they turned into the avenue that led to Mr. Roberts' door. Then Gracie said, Dr. Everett, I should like to know that girl. There are some things that I ought to say to her, and if I had a chance, I would try to say them in a way to help her. I will manage it, said Dr. Everett, speaking in a quick, relieved tone. He felt encouraged for Hester now, and greatly relieved about Gracie. She might be wounded, but she was made of the material of which he had hoped. She was not going to die herself, nor fold her hands and see others ruined, merely because she had been deceived. He bade her a cheery good afternoon and drove away, feeling that, although he had been obliged to give up Sewell Alley, good work had been accomplished. He believed now that he understood the situation. He was right about one thing. Gracie Dennis had not the slightest idea of dying. Her mood was better expressed half an hour later, when she stood at the parlor window, and returned a low lingering bow from Professor Ellis, 
with a haughty stare from flashing eyes, looking out from an erect and motionless head. Dirk Colson's brain was in a whirl. He had an important question to settle. In his pocket were two blue tickets, promising to admit him to the largest and finest hall in the city to hear the great temperance orator. Dirk knew very little about orators, but he had heard of John B. Gow, and everything he had heard made him wish to have a glimpse of him. You will remember that Dirk was an imitator. He had heard that Mr. Gow was also, and deep down in his heart the boy had an ambition to hear the man. Now was his unexpected opportunity. Of course he was going, but the perplexing thing was, what to do with that other ticket? There was Mart? Oh, yes, to be sure, he had not forgotten her. But what a strange thing it would be to take her to a lecture! He had never taken her anywhere in his life. She had nothing to wear, though he remembered at that moment that the mother had, by earnest effort, succeeded in getting her shawl out of pawn. There was one incentive for taking her. It would please Mrs. Roberts. Dirk studied the thing for some time, to try to discover why she should care, and had finally given up the problem as too great for him. Yet he was sure she cared. There had been a wistful light in her eyes when she said, I thought possibly you might like to take that sister with the golden hair, that he saw and interpreted. It took him three days to decide what he should say, supposing he made up his mind to ask her. Several people were at work helping him, though he knew nothing about that. Mrs. Roberts remarked one evening to young Reed that she wished she knew a way to induce Dirk Colson to take his sister without actually asking him to do so. She fancied that, besides the advantage which might possibly directly follow an evening spent in that way, it would suggest new thoughts to the brother. The young man caught at the suggestion and wanted to help carry it out. It was not an easy thing to do. He had not grown intimate with Dirk Colson. In fact, that misguided young fellow rather resented any attempt at intimacy. He was, however, acquainted with Sally Calkins. The numerous trips he had made to their room during Mark's illness had brought him into such constant and pleasant contact with Sally and her brother that they looked upon him as a tried friend. Sally, he knew, was a friend of the shy, golden-haired sister. So one evening he went to call at the Calkins' room, with a vague hope of helping indirectly in bringing to pass Mrs. Roberts' desires. To Sally he made known the wish that Dirk would take his sister to the lecture, and secured from her a promise to help the scheme along, provided it developed. After he went away, Sally sat long at her sewing, making all alone, by a dim light, one of the most heroic little sacrifices that was ever offered in his name. To fully understand it, you must know that Mark Calkins had recovered sufficiently to take his place in the office where Dr. Everett had secured him an opening, and an employment that would enable him to sit most of the time, thereby giving his injured limb a chance to rest. Also, Mark had been admitted to the Monday evening gatherings, and was distinguishing himself there by his skill in reading and writing. Of course, he had received two tickets, and equally, of course, being the boy he was, he had planned to take Sally with him to the lecture. Great was Sally's prospective pleasure. The event of her lifetime it was to be. To walk with Mark through the crowded streets, both neatly dressed, to walk boldly forward with the throng, and present their tickets of admittance to the great hall, hitherto seen only from the outside, to move down the long aisles as those who had a right, 
and select their seats unquestioned by police. In short, to be like other people, part of the great well-to-do world, this was Sally's joy. She had washed and mended her best calico dress. She had sewed buttons on the pretty cape, according to Mrs. Roberts' directions. She had tried on the neat bonnet which had been manufactured for her by Mrs. Roberts' own fingers, and, altogether, Sally had probably gotten, during those two days, more enjoyment out of Gow's lecture than many others, who had heard him a dozen times, ever secured. I do not think it any wonder that, as she rocked and sewed, and thought out her great thought, there fell tears on the work she was doing. End of chapter 23 Recording by Tricia G.